Welcome to Armenian Alliance Conversations. I'm Manya Ksakian. Today we will be discussing the Armenia versus Azerbaijan and Azerbaijan versus Armenia cases that were brought to the International Court of Justice in The Hague in the Netherlands in September 2021. On December 7, 2021, the ICJ granted some of the provisional measures that Armenia had requested from the court. However, the ICJ did not grant all of the provisional measures that Armenia has requested, including the immediate release of Armenian POWs being held by Azerbaijan since 2020. We will be discussing why the ICJ did not issue a ruling in favor of releasing Armenian POWs and all of the other requests for provisional measures made by Armenia and Azerbaijan. We want to understand what this case is about and why the ruling issued by the highest international court in the world has very serious implications for Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Artsakh. My guest today is Gabriel Armas Cardona Esquire, who is an expert in international law and a human rights lawyer. His work is focused on international right to health issues, improving the lives of people living in marginal communities, and survivors of human rights violations. He is currently a research associate and lecturer at Z Leipzig University in Leipzig, Germany. He has a Juris Doctorate from New York University School of Law and a bachelor's degree in astrophysics from University of California, Santa Cruz. He has worked on human rights issues in India, Libya, El Salvador, the United States, and Armenia. Mr. Armas Cardona has worked extensively in Armenia on various public service projects. I would like to mention some of the human rights work that he has done in Armenia. In 2018, while working as an independent consultant for the Women's Support Center in Yerevan, Armenia, Mr. Armas Cardona developed revisions to the domestic violence law of Armenia that the NGO could propose to the ministry to ensure the law's compliance with Armenia's legal obligations, and the Council of Europe Convention on Preventing and Combating Violence Against Women and Domestic Violence. In 2017, he wrote a policy paper that elaborated Armenian's human, Armenia's human rights obligations regarding abortion, potential threats to reproductive rights, and opportunities for civil society to promote rights-respecting laws and policies. He has also worked on combating gender discrimination in Armenia and discrimination based on sexual orientation. In 2012, as a volunteer for Birthright Armenia, he worked as a law fellow in the Office of the Human Rights Ombudsman of Armenia. I'm very happy to welcome Gabriel Armas Cardona, joining us today from Yerevan, Armenia. Gabriel, thank you for being my guest today. Uh, thank you, Manyak, for hosting me. I'm very excited to be here. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Before we begin our discussion on today's topic, I asked you if you wanted to speak about your Armenian heritage, and you graciously agreed to do so. So, with that said, what country are the Armenian members of your family from? So, the Armenian side of my family, I'm only part Armenian uh, by bloodline or by history, but my Armenian side originally comes from Mush in obviously modern day Turkey. Uh, my great grandmother left uh, a little bit prior to the genocide actually. There had been pogroms against her village and her family had decided to leave and they did the circuitous route to eventually end up in Fresno, California, being one of the original uh, Armenian diasporan communities of the state. And um, yeah, that's what my background is from that. What motivated you to want to volunteer in Armenia with Birthright Armenia? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That is, uh, uh, yeah, that was definitely a surprise, not just to myself, but to my entire family. Uh, my family is, you could consider, very typical uh, diasporan Ar Armenian Americans, where we've been assimilated, really kind of more on the American side of things. Uh, my neither my grandmother nor my mother married Armenians, and so while I recognize my Armenian heritage, I also recognize the, my heritage from my father's side. He is from El Salvador, completely different country, different continent, uh, different culture, and both parts are part of my background. And um, just living in the United States, it's easier to connect with you know a country that is only a few 
like a short few hours uh, flight away versus one that's on the other side of the world. But what happened for me was that uh, I had graduated from law school. I wanted to do international law and human rights issues. And as a young lawyer, it's very difficult to get into that field. And so my approach was, okay, well, I know I'm going to have to sacrifice on something. And that would be on geographic location. You know, I will go wherever I can, wherever an opportunity presents itself. And uh, I was at a party once in New York City and someone asked me, oh, have you ever done Birthright Armenia? And I'm like, what is that? And I learned more about the organization and how they help diasporans come to Armenia and do work there. And so I contacted them and said, look, you know, I'm not someone who's just graduating from college, just trying to find myself. I was actually wanting to do real work. Is that something I can do with you? And they're like, sure. Where would you love to work? And I said, my ideal place would be the Human Rights Ombudsman's Office of the Republic of Armenia. And they helped facilitate that. So once they said, yes, we can help make that happen, I was like, I might as well go. You know, this is the opportunity I wanted. And I haven't had a single regret since. It was an amazing opportunity back then. Um, uh, and I have since then that really solidified my connection with the country of Armenia. And um, as demonstrated by right now, I've come back regularly uh, since that time. That's exactly right, because I've actually met a lot of uh, Birthright Armenia alumni, and not a single person that I've spoken to has um, said anything negative or regrettable um, about their experience. I just, um, I love, you know, talking about it because I think it is a wonderful organization because it gives young people an opportunity to really do something meaningful instead of just mm -hmm. being a tourist in Armenia, but actually mm -hmm. just connecting your knowledge and your skills with something that you can do in Armenia and getting a sense of that Armenian world in the sense that the the way that people live and work in the country, not being, you know, just the tourist and going to the sightseeing and restaurants. And and I think that's mm -hmm. very important to to give people a sense of that that real sense of, of life in Armenia and to to have that uh, giving young people an opportunity to actually do meaningful work that benefits Armenia mm -hmm. and again, usually in most cases, leading to lifelong engagement with Armenia. So it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's a wonderful organization. And I just, I just want to take every opportunity to really talk about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I second everything you just said. <laughs> well, thank you so much for sharing your personal story with us. I really appreciate it. It's wonderful because again, we have all of these diaspora communities and, you know, we, we want to illuminate that. And every per I feel like every person has a, has a piece of the history of Armenia in their family. Hmm. And I really want to illuminate that. Well, mm -hmm. again, um, thank you again um, for sharing your story with us. And I want to get to the topic of our um, discussion today, which is, um, which is, of course, the ICJ cases of Armenia and Azerbaijan at the International Court in The Hague. And um, you wrote two articles for EVN report about this topic, and you have clear explanations of these complicated cases for the general public. Um, you also provided very important analysis and insights based on your expertise in human rights law. So um, I'd like to start at the beginning um, for everyone else who has a limited um, knowledge of international law, including me, um, so what is the International Court of Justice and how does a person become a judge at the ICJ? So the ICJ is um, known sometimes as the World Court, which is a name I don't like that much personally, but it, ca it captures its role. The ICJ was created uh, at the same time as the UN uh, with a purpose of being able to hear disputes between any state in the, any two states in the world regarding any issue in public international law. So that sense, it is kind of like a world's court in that it can hear almost any legal dispute that we have between states. Uh, the court itself uh, has 15 permanent judges. They are each come from a separate country, even though they are independent of those countries' politics. Um, the court also, though, has the uh, judges ad hoc. And so this is a different way of one can be a judge. 
So permanent judges are appointed, or are they are appointed is a bit strong. They are uh, selected as possibilities, as candidates, and then they have to be elected by the UN General Assembly and the UN Security Council. So that those become the 15 permanent members. But judges ad hoc are also judges. Those are ones where if there's ever a dispute where a country does not have a judge of their ethnicity, uh, sorry, of their nationality uh, on the, um, as part of the court, then they can select a judge ad hoc. So for example, in our recent cases of Armenia versus Azerbaijan, uh, there are no judges from Armenia or Azerbaijan, so both countries were able to select a judge ad hoc that would be there. The purpose for this is that a judge from, with the same nationality or judge ad hoc is, meant, is, is, is hoped that they would be able to understand the issues, the concerns of that country and be able to explain it in discussions between the judges um, internally in the court. Well, one thing that I'm glad you mentioned is the um, fact that in order to uh, bring cases before this court, um, a group, an ethnicity, if you will, it, it has to be a state. So, mm -hmm. um, for, so for example, Artsakh is technically legally not recognized as a state, and therefore the mm -hmm. Artsakh government cannot bring a, a case to the court on their behalf. Armenia has brought the case not only on its own behalf, but also on their behalf in the, in the practical sense, because the requests that Armenia has asked for are essentially related to what is happening in the territory of Artsakh. So mm -hmm. that's one thing yes. that I wanted to point out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, it's even broader. The, uh, the claim comes regarding ethnic Armenians. So it's Armenians in Artsakh, Armenians in Armenia, Armenians uh, anywhere else, like the POWs that are being held in Azerbaijan itself. Um, yeah, it, it's it fully inclusive. Awesome. So um, second question, um, Armenia has, um, Armenia decided to bring a case at the ICJ um, based on a human rights treaty called CERD, which of course is an acronym. Mm -hmm. And um, please explain what CERD is and why Armenia and Azerbaijan brought their cases based on CERD. Sure. So CERD is the Convention for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, uh, which is a mouthful. So I will also just say CERD from now on. Uh, CERD is special because, uh, well, for two reasons. Uh, one, it is the very first human rights treaty that was ever created in the world. So that's exciting. Um, but by being the first, it also is a little bit different. It has a different approach to things which were not copied later on. You know, you can think of this as this was the test run type of thing. Uh, and so first off, CERD, the content of CERD is a bit small. It doesn't, like while it's aimed at eliminating racial discrimination, it doesn't have many rights that are listed, at least not explicitly within that. Uh, and second, uh, which goes to the second part of your question, which is interesting, is that CERD allows a direct path to the ICJ. So inside Surge, it's Article 22, it says that if two states have a dispute uh, regarding what CERD obligations entail, uh, and they're not able to resolve that dispute in negotiations, then either state can bring a case to the ICJ regarding that issue, uh, which is uh, unique. Future uh, human rights treaties did not include such a path, such an easy path to the ICJ. Uh, the ICJ is not meant to be a court that hears, well, it simply can't be a court that hears every single concern in the world because it's one court and, well, there's a lot of countries. And so after CERD, it became more restrictive to be able to access the ICJ. And so because of that special situation, that uh, Armenia utilized CERD rather than any other human rights treaty to be able to bring a case to the court because it simply, it could uh, with CERD and it wouldn't be able to without Azerbaijan's consent uh, regarding any other treaty. So that's um, one of the issues with uh, bringing cases to the court outside of CERD, because essentially in most cases, if you want to, if one state wants to bring an, an case against another state, that state, but essentially both states would have to consent to have their cases heard before the ICJ. Exactly. There, are, uh, there is a system where states basically give uh, consent ahead of time for any, so any uh, state that has uh, given this pre-consent can just bring a case against any other state that has given this pre-consent. So it's, it's, that is automatic. But neither Armenia or Azerbaijan have done that. And so that means that they would have to reach out to each other, request consent, 
uh, to bring a case regarding any other matter. And, you know, knowing the politics, that's just not going to happen. So Armenia initiated the proceedings against Azerbaijan on September 16, 2021, and Azerbaijan initiated proceedings against Armenia on September 23, 2021, and both Armenia and Azerbaijan requested provisional measures from the ICJ, while the final ruling on this ca on these cases is expected to take several years. Why did Armenia and Azerbaijan request provisional measures? Sure. The key idea from a kind of a practical sense is exactly what you just said, that the, the final merits won't be resolved for years. And so, and this is a, you know, a, a dynamic conflict. You know, we don't know where we're going to be a couple years from now. Uh, so that's one of the aspects. And on the, uh, uh, to provide the, uh, another legal aspect or legal dimension of why they requested provisional, ma uh, provisional measures is because there is a significant need. There's a real crisis of what is going on right now. And from Armenia's perspective, it's you know, the treatment of the POWs, it's destruction of cultural sites, and these are irreparable harms. You know, these are, once they're gone, they're gone. And we don't want to have to wait years to be able to, before we're able to protect them. And so it makes perfect logical sense to use provisional measures in such a case. Provisional measures are meant to prevent irreparable harms when there's a sense of an urgent concern, which is exactly what we have here. Well, I must say, I actually he heard every word of the arguments in these cases, which you can hear from the um, ICJ website, which, of course, each argument session is close to four hours, so it was a lot of hours. But I would say that the entire of the entire arguments um, um, sessions that took place, hours and hours of talking, perhaps the most striking part of it was the description of the torture of POWs that were offered as part of the oral arguments on behalf of Armenia. So um, since I mentioned that, um, um, let's, um, I'd like to ask, how did Armenia and Azerbaijan uh, present their cases to the ICJ with regard to how cases are prepared and how they are presented mm -hmm. to the ICJ? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, um, yeah. regarding the treatment of POWs, we'll be talking about that later, I'm sure. So just getting to your question, uh, the, the way the, the case were brought were pretty straightforward. So the, you initially, each case, uh, each state uh, submits its complaint or its, its application to start the proceedings against you know, the respondent state. Uh, and both Armenia and Azerbaijan did that. As you mentioned, the dates, Armenia was first, then Azerbaijan followed. Uh, after the, those initial applications, which are on paper, then we have an oral hearing. And that's where the, each side is able to present arguments. So for Armenia's case, it would go first presenting its case, and then Azerbaijan would be able to respond, uh, and then uh, with a rebuttal to that, and then Armenia would have a sur rebuttal to, our, to Azerbaijan. And for Azerbaijan's case, it was the exact mirror of that. Azerbaijan went first, then Armenia, then Azerbaijan. Uh, and in the way, uh, the way these hearings were, uh, the oral arguments were conducted was pretty straightforward. Um, both countries hired law firms that had expertise, which makes total sense. Neither country has ever been to the ICJ before, so they don't have domestic expertise on this. It makes sense to reach out to experts. And from that, they have the agent of the case, which is a member of the uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs, who is technically the most in charge of the case. But they had multiple experts come in, for example, professors uh, who would argue on specific matters of each of the cases. So, for example, whether we have jurisdiction or not, um, you know, the release of the POWs or uh, the handing over the landmine maps. Each there would be a separate expert discussing each of those matters. Um, the, honestly, the most notable thing from uh, my perspective on this proceedings is that it was done in a hybrid way. Uh, where you had some of the um, agents uh, arguing and some of the judges who were there electronically. This, of course, is all because of COVID, but you, know, you can see the court trying to recognize the issues of the day and still you know, getting its work done. And of course, uh, we should mention that uh, whatever we heard in the oral arguments, th that's just a small amount of the material, the highlights, if you will, of the I imagine possibly hundreds, if not thousands of pages of material and evidence that was 
submitted to the court by working, you know, by lawyers and and experts working behind the scenes. You're absolutely right. Um, both parties agreed to not make public certain documents and evidences that are present that were provided to the court. And so we just don't know, like unless one is part of the team, you don't know the full extent of the materials provided to the court. And obviously we don't, you know, that's only the most, uh, the clearest, most precise, most persuasive evidence. There must be so much more that was eventually cut because all lawyers have to cut the things that while it kind of helps the case, it's might be distracting or it might be just kind of different. It's in the, in the end, it, it is not as persuasive as something else. And so, you know, lawyers always have to make the cut of what doesn't make it through, what does make it through. And so it takes hours and hours and hours of work. Yes, of course, it's incredible. And it's just, it's a years long process. It took a, a year to prepare these cases because um, of course, um, Armenia gave notice to Azerbaijan immediately after the war um, mm -hmm. that if they were not able to resolve these differences um, with the allegations that Armenia was making, that obviously then the case would proceed to the ICJ. Um, mm -hmm. So in response to Armenia's case against Azerbaijan, Azerbaijan argued that Armenia did not have jurisdiction to argue a case at the ICJ. And of course, in response to Azerbaijan's case against Armenia, Armenia also argued that Azerbaijan did not have jurisdiction. Can you explain what it means to have jurisdiction in this context? Sure, I'm happy to. So um, I already mentioned that the court can hear cases on any issue in public international law. So that type of jurisdiction on the subject matter that's a non-issue. We don't even have to concern ourselves. The bigger issue is whether the court has jurisdiction over the parties. And that is something that is a big challenge uh, for the ICJ uh, because, well, if it doesn't have jurisdiction, it's not allowed to hear the case. It's just that's a standard thing in, in law. Um, if a court can't hear a party for whatever reason, maybe it's in, the, it's in a wrong country or something like that, um, it can't proceed. And ICJ is very respectful of states' rights. So if states uh, have not consented to the ICJ, then the ICJ must ensure it has jurisdiction some other way. And so the jurisdictional battle uh, is, is a very common battle for in ICJ cases. But in this case, I, I just did not, I was a little surprised just how much time was spent on it. Um, there was a previous case uh, in, uh, uh, that Georgia had brought up against Russia uh, regard using CERD as well. And that case was ultimately, while Georgia had some success at the beginning, it was ultimately dropped because it was found that Georgia had not fulfilled the requirements. It hadn't really negotiated uh, with Russia regarding a, um, a dispute. And so if there's no failed negotiation, you don't fulfill the Article 2 requirements of CERD. Armenia learned from that. And so as you just mentioned, there was extensive amounts of communication, whether in written form and also meetings, brought up about this. So, you know, Armenia was going to uh, made sure that it would fulfill this requirement for jurisdiction. And so that, you know, it's, it makes sense that it was brought up, but I thought Armenia f uh, would fulfill it quite easily, which at the same time, if Armenia is able to fulfill it, it's pretty straightforward. Or it's not 100%, but it's pretty straightforward that Azerbaijan is able to as well. The two requirements is that there must be a dispute and there must be failed negotiations. Clearly, if the two sides disagree, that means there's a dispute, and that means both of them fulfill that requirement for jurisdiction. So then, really, what the heart of the arguments was is whether the other side had actually meaningfully engaged in negotiations before they failed. So, you know, Azerbaijan was trying to say that Armenia did not really engage in negotiations, which means that it would have it, its case would have been dropped like Georgia's ultimately was. And then Armenia did the same thing that Azerbaijan did not, uh, you know, meaningfully or sincerely engage in negotiations. Uh, the court uh, rejected both of those arguments and found that both countries have jurisdiction to bring their claims. What are the provisional measures that Armenia requested from the ICJ? In this case, Armenia asked for eight provisional measures, but I can summarize them into four to just not have to give a long list. So the first uh, category, the first group, is for the release of the POWs and for their well-treatment in the meantime before the release. Uh, the second one has to do with the closing of the military trophies park uh, and other issues of statements of racial hatred by Azerbaijan. 
the third is the protection of Armenian cultural sites that are now under control of Azerbaijan. And the fourth was uh, regular reporting by Azerbaijan on its compliance with these provisional measures. Those are the four kind of categories of the eight measures that were asked, asked for by Armenia. Now, of course, Azerbaijan also requested provisional measures. So what are the provisional measures that Azerbaijan requested? The provisional measures that were requested by Azerbaijan, I'll also just try and group them to simplify things. The first has to do, the first grouping has to do with issues of war. So the, you know, the most well-known one is a request for handing over the landmine maps. Uh, it also uh, other things like not um, uh, planting more landmines, things having to do with the actual military side of the conflict. Uh, second dimension has to do with uh, statements of racial hatred. And here, uh, Azerbaijan made a specific re reference to VOMA, which is an organization that uh, teaches uh, civilians uh, survival skills which also include uh, some um, like weapons training. And Azerbaijan views organizations like VOMA, which is the first, but now there's a couple like it, as anti-Azerbaijani organizations um, that promote hate speech against them. Azerbaijan also asked for, um, uh, for uh, Armenia to not to, uh, it's a standard request to not um, make it more difficult to resolve the conflict. It's just a, a standard request to not inflame the issue that the dispute between the states, um, and then also for regular reporting from Armenia on its compliance with provisional measures. Now, one thing that was interesting to me um, regarding the requests on the hate speech issue, um, in in the sense that when you have when you have a free and democratic country like Armenia, and you have individual citizens let's just say as an example if someone were to burn the azerbaijani flag in yerevan square then what responsibility does the state have to control that knowing that in democratic countries of course you know mm -hmm. citizens have the rights to speak out and you know as they say it, it gets complicated when it's speech we mm -hmm. don't like Mm -hmm. This is a fantastic question, and the unfortunate answer I can give you is that it's not settled. Uh, right now, there is a massive debate on basically we want to promote freedom of expression, but there's also a concern of hate speech. And that is more, uh, and what we're talking about with CERD is more than just a concern, there's actually a legal obligation. So CERD, by being the first human rights treaty, really is an element of its day. And so this was just after World War II. And what did we have in World War II? We had, you know, the hate speech and propaganda that, you know, just to focus on one group, that the Nazis issued. And so World, uh, CERD was kind of written with the Nazis in mind. So that really extreme level of hatred of, you know, of, you know pre-genocidal and then genocidal uh, uh, acts and speeches. And so it's, that is its main concern. But naturally, nowadays, uh, well, even back then, but nowadays especially, we also care about freedom of expression. And so trying to balance those two. Uh, I can't give you anything, you know, I can't tell you anything concrete because it is still such an evolving space. Um, I will say, though, that one of the interesting comments uh, was made actually by one of the judges who they, um, they made no comments in the oral arguments, but one of the judges wrote in a separate concurrence. So after the provisional measures were issued by the court, this one judge just said, you know, I fully recognize that these are legal obligations on the state. They must prevent racial hatred, even among private citizens. But we have to understand that in the context that there is, was active conflicts, you know, back in the 90s and then just last year as well. And so, you know, it's, it's extreme or it's unrealistic to expect, you know, the, these populations to act in a, in a neutral, uh, you know, in, purely impartial way. You know, emotions run high for very good reasons. So where exactly the line is on what is allowed and what isn't allowed, um, it's, I, I, can't, um, uh, I can't spell it out. Uh, burning flags in general, I want to say is allowed um, because it is sadly, or maybe not sadly, but just in reality, it is a pretty common activity. Um, but this would be something that, you know, specifics like this would be something that one would have to delve uh, into the, the, the jurisprudence of CERD, you know, the, the, how it has been elaborated over the decades on what is uh, within the limits of freedom of expression and what isn't. 
So the ICJ ruled on the provisional measures on December 7, 2021, which is incredibly fast for an international court to make a ruling in such a short time. But what rulings did the ICJ issue in the cases of Armenia versus Azerbaijan and Azerbaijan versus Armenia? Yes, the court issued uh, five provisional measures, uh, one though that is shared between both Azerbaijan and Armenia. So the provisional measures that uh, were issued against Azerbaijan, uh, there's three unique ones. So the first one is for the well treatment of POWs. Uh, the second is to prevent vandalization and desecration of Armenian cultural sites that are now under its control. And the third has to do with preventing uh, statements of racial hatred or racial discrimination, especially by public institutions. Um, Armenia had one unique provisional measure, which is the prevention of statements of racial hatred by private actors. So that one, you can notice there's a slight difference between the provisional measure against Armenia versus the one in Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan is focused more on politicians and public institutions. Um, and the one for Armenia is more about uh, uh, controlling uh, private, actor, uh, private speech by private actors. And then finally, there's the last shared uh, provisional measure, which is to not aggravate the dispute between the parties. So one very important uh, request for Armenia, perhaps the most important request, was that Armenia asked the ICJ to order Azerbaijan to release the Armenian POWs being held by Azerbaijan since 2020. Now, before the ruling, you predicted that the ICJ was unlikely to order the release of POWs as a provisional measure, and you mm -hmm. were correct. So why didn't the ICJ order the release of POWs as a provisional measure? Um, I felt that there's just no way that this could succeed uh, for two reasons. The main one is that f to get a provisional measure, a state has to pass a plausibility test. That is, like, that is the requirement, the threshold that must be met to be able to get a provisional measure that's requested. Uh, the plausibility test has two parts. Uh, one, you have to show that what you're asking for is plausibly connected to the right that is listed in the treaty, so in this case, in CERD. And the second is you have to provide enough evidence uh, to show that what you are claiming, what your claims on the facts are plausible. You know, you're not just making something up, you know, or saying something that is purely theoretical, that there's some justification that why you're asking for this. And the issue for Armenia and the release of POWs is the first one. Uh, the court uh, even commented on this, uh, that the release of POWs is goes to is one of the you know it's a key issue of international humanitarian law uh, the humanitarian law is often known as the law of war and it has to deal with concerns on the well treatment of POWs um, and you know, eventually their release but the case in front of us was not about international humanitarian law it was about CERD and the court is not allowed to go beyond CERD to talk about other issues, even if there was would be a violation of international humanitarian law, um, the court is simply uh, limited to the scope of what is within CERD and what is not. And so Armenia would have to be able to say that the detention of the POWs uh, is done purely on the basis of a of racial discrimination or ethnic discrimination. Thus, it could say that it is within CERD. And the court said that that is simply not plausible. You know, that Armenia could not prevent uh, present evidence that it was do because of the ethnic uh, ethnicity of the people versus their status as fighters in the war or some other status like that. I think one of the issues that we have is that lay people who are not lawyers, they think of courts in the sense of courts do the right thing. That's what they're there for. And so, but one thing that we don't know is that courts must work within a legal framework wherein they have to justify their decisions. They don't just make decisions based on the right thing. Unfortunately, even we want, even though we want them to most of the time. Mm -hmm. You're absolutely right. And so the big thing that the average layperson won't understand is, is why the court is only looking at uh, issues within CERD rather than any potential violations of international law. And it's because, as we were discussing before, the importance of jurisdiction. The court has jurisdiction only because of CERD. So only matters within CERD, can the court hear anything out of it? The court has to put aside whether or not there was a violation. 
So Judge Ghazi Abkarian from the Center for Truth and Justice uh, has said mm -hmm. that the ICJ ruling is significant because it is the first time that any court of law has ruled that Azerbaijan practices state-sponsored racial discrimination against Armenians. The experts who are concerned about the destruction of cultural heritage in conflict zones have also praised this as a very important ruling for the protection of cultural heritage in conflict zones. What do you think of the legal importance of the ruling on these provisional measures? Mm -hmm. So um, I will, I'll start off saying that it's important and I'll get into that. But first, just a, a slight aspect. Um, you can't say these provisional measures are a ruling, really. And to say that the court has ruled that Azerbaijan has uh, mistreated the POWs, you can't also say that. At this point, all the court has, has essentially said is that there is plausible concern, that the concern for the POWs is plausible, that, the, that there is a, some evidence of their mistreatment enough to warrant a provisional measure. We're going to unfortunately have to wait for the final merits before the court can, will actually say whether the rights of the POWs were violated uh, regarding um, racial discrimination or not. Um, but in terms of the importance of this, I think this is absolutely a majorly important aspect. Um, let's talk about the cultural, uh, um, cultural sites, as mentioned. So the protection of cultural sites has been a part of international law for quite a long time. Um, it was, it it's, uh, has origins from the uh, 19th century and it was put into the 1954 Hague Convention on the Protection of Cultural Sites. But while has it existed, the actual enforcement has been rather weak. The enforcement has really been left up to uh, the UN Security Council on really extreme matters or things of, of world importance or what the what, or what the members of the Security Council think are of world importance, uh, and the UNESCO organization, which is a part of the United Nations. UNESCO is directly in charge of the uh, protection of cultural sites, but the problem is that UNESCO works by consent. And so UNESCO, in that sense, is rather weak in what it's able to do. It, it, uh, UNESCO actually did specifically request uh, to be able to go to uh, Karabakh and Nagorno-Karabakh um, after the war, it's issued that uh, re request to Azerbaijan, and Azerbaijan declined it. And that is as far as UNESCO is legally able to do. Um, of course, they can put more pressure on Azerbaijan to try to get Azerbaijan to say yes, but ultimately uh, UNESCO cannot uh, proceed without the consent of the state. And so what we have now is we have the ICJ is engaged, and that is fantastic. The ICJ is, you know, the world court. Uh, but most importantly, the ICJ uh, recognizes that there's these concerns and is willing to have uh, to ensure that there's compliance with its rulings. If a state is not willing to comply with the rulings, including uh, or the provisional measures, that can be an issue then that really escalates and can go to the, potentially to the UN Security Council. So, uh, yes, I think that this has uh, definitely some impacts of getting the ICJ involved in these matters. Uh, and it will be notable uh, for the conflict in general. And overall, I think it's great for Armenia because Armenia, as post-war, being in a weaker position, really wants to get more international attention to this conflict because it helps just stop uh, Azerbaijan from being able to engage in unilateral actions against Armenia. With that said, my next question is actually... Um, leading to this because every Armenian who learned about this ruling was wondering what practical implications in the real world this um, this decision from the ICJ can have to compel Azerbaijan <laughs> to um, essentially um, do what the ICJ has ordered them to do as far as the provisional measures. That's a fair question. It's, it's often a concern with human rights is how do we actually enforce it, make sure it becomes real on the ground. Um, I already mentioned there's the possibility of going to the UN Security Council far into the future if things get quite bad. I personally don't think they're going to go that, to that level um, because uh, for one big reason, and that's because Azerbaijan cares about its public image, or Aliyev cares about Azerbaijan's public image. Uh, uh, Armenians often like to call Azerbaijan North Korea. Um, that, that description, or the North Korea, the Caucasus, um, that description misses one key, key difference, which is that North Korea does not work with the international community while Azerbaijan does. 
Azerbaijan puts a significant amount of attention, money, uh, and, and just uh, importance on what other countries think of Azerbaijan and working with them. And it, I don't see Azerbaijan willing to sacrifice you know, all of the money that it's, uh, uh, all the, the positive benefits that its money has gotten it through years of caviar diplomacy by not following the, uh, these provisional measures at the ICJ. So I think there will be work done by Azerbaijan to fulfill its requirements for, um, to, uh, to follow the, these requirements of the provisional measures. The, that could have certain aspects. Most of them I think will be minor. For example, there'll be less uh, um, uh, hate speech from public institutions in Azerbaijan. That's pretty, sim that's pretty straightforward. You know, okay, it'll be a slight toning down of the rhetoric. Uh, the, the, there will be the well treatment of the POWs, at least regarding certain uh, re, uh, requirements, which I think at this stage is uh, pretty much expected. The benefit that, uh, that came from the uh, torture or extrajudicial killings of POWs or other detainees, uh, that really was beneficial uh, for, or that really had its impact right after the war when Armenia was more in a shocked situation. Um, of course, the mistreatment of POWs is always a wrong but it's, it won't have the political benefit that it did a year ago. And so I don't see Azerbaijan trying to pursue that route at all anymore. Um, maybe it happens. Um, I'm, not trying, I'm not trying to say it won't happen, but I don't think it'll be anything like a state policy to encourage that. The biggest difference, which I definitely do see, though, is the protection of cultural sites. Because Azerbaijan's approach to Karabakh for the last uh, year has been to redevelop it in its own image, however um, it, it needs it to be to, you know, in its modern idea of Azerbaijan, which of course means that sometimes Armenian you know, cult, you know, churches or cemeteries or other cultural sites must be removed to be able to create that image. But now Azerbaijan can no longer go along that route. It needs to be able to take into account that these uh, sites are you know, in the court's eye, that they are um, officially being, you know, the, uh, Azerbaijan has these official requirements to not vandalize, desecrate, and that includes, you know, uh, uh, renovating them to restore their original Caucasian-Albanian roots, you know, that type of idea. And so anything along those lines could be detrimental to Azerbaijan, and so it needs to be much more careful in how it's going to be developing the sites in Karabakh and ensure that Armenian sites are not harmed or damaged as it develops or builds what it wants to. We should say, in all fairness, that a significant amount of cultural heritage, modern and ancient, in Artsakh has already been destroyed in the territories that Azerbaijan has captured during the war. Um, I mean, we're talking about significant sites, like the 200-year-old Ganadjum church in um, Shushi, which was completely leveled to the ground. Um, and of course, ancient cemeteries, um, which are obviously significant because it shows the years of Armenian heritage that has existed in those areas that are now under the control of Azerbaijan. Now, one thing that I found um, significant while listening to the arguments at the ICJ was the announcement by Azerbaijan's legal team that Azerbaijan has removed the helmets and the uh, racist caricature mannequins of Armenian soldiers from the war trophy park. I must say, I found that shocking because I feel that despite all of the international condemnation that has occurred, that that was the centerpiece of Aliyev's propaganda, and that's why he was able, he was willing to absorb the international condemnation in order to maintain that centerpiece, which of having this physical park in the center of Baku and sending the children to visit and doing all these things. So when they announced that they had removed those, and they actually said that the that we want to clarify that the helmets that we said were taken from dead Armenian soldiers, which of course I find grotesque to actually have this image of people going around and collecting helmets from dead bodies from a, for a future war trophy park. They actually said, well, those were actually, you know, surplus helmets that we found that Armenian soldiers had left behind. So to essentially take those actions and to kind of reveal the, the illusion behind the propaganda, if you will, I thought that that was really a significant sign that 
Azerbaijan was taking this case seriously. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I have to agree with you. Uh, it's really indefensible when the statues, you know, the creators of those statues said, yes, we tried to make these Armenian figures look as ugly and as inhuman as possible. It's like, that's literally the definition of what goes into racial discrimination and dehumanizing an, uh, an ethnic group. Uh, so Azerbaijan knew it had simply no chance to justify uh, the, the mannequins uh, and the helmets from fallen soldiers is absolutely grotesque. And so Azerbaijan decided, you know what, all right, let's just pull those from the park. And I, the court uh, in the issuing for the provisional measures, of course, it did not close the military trophies park, but it noted that uh, Azerbaijan had taken those steps. And my feeling is that the court would have made an order regarding the park if Azerbaijan had not done that, because those are just such explicit examples of racial discrimination. Absolutely agree. So, um, Eric Hakopian of CivilNet um, did an episode mm -hmm. of his show called Insights with Eric Hakopian, which I highly recommend. And he did an entire episode on the ICJ uh, provisional measures decisions and he believes that this case is an opportunity for Armenia to ask for international protection for the people of Artsakh and I feel more importantly to lay the groundwork for legally separating Artsakh from Azerbaijan. What do you think of this idea? Uh, yes, I watched that video as well. Um, Eric Hakopian, I think, is great, and I definitely support him and his work. Regarding this specific issue, I totally agree with the first part of that sentence, but unfortunately, the part that you consider most imp more important, I, I have to disagree. So, uh, regarding those two aspects, I, I completely agree with the first part about protection for uh, the Armenians of Arsakh. Um, this, you know, the, the abuses, the rhetoric that has been very prevalent in the Caucasus for the last couple decades that Armenians are very intimately aware of from the Arme from the Azerbaijani side. Uh, most of the world does not know about this. Um, the, the conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan is an incredibly messy one. It's incredibly fact-detailed, uh, fact-laden, and that means that if someone wants to get a sense of this conflict, they have to spend a lot of time to really get a, uh, to understand what's going on. And by this uh, with this court case, uh, we're finally going to have one dimension of this be made, uh, put onto the international level and clarified. You know, we're no longer going to need, you know, only experts that care about the, the geopolitics of the Caucasus or, you know, the conflict itself, uh, being aware of the, the rhetoric and the concerns of, that the Armenians in Arsak uh, uh, live with every day. But now anyone that cares about, you know, international law in general, this will become something that will be uh, you know, on their radar. And so in that sense, it's definitely possible. Uh, the, uh, you know, being aware that Azerbaijan has engaged in this rhetoric, has abused um, and tortured detainees, uh, POWs, as well as civilians, you know, that will be notable. And so there will, there can definitely be, I don't want to say will, because I can't promise anything, but there can definitely be more attention, more awareness uh, from institutions on the protection of these uh, people and the insurance of their ability to live lives without extreme human rights violations. So that, yes, definitely. But now getting to the other side. Um, I know that Armenians uh, have promoted, especially during the war, the idea of remedial secession. So the question is, you know, uh, it's uh, the, 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 the people of Artsakh have a right to self-determination. Definitely. There's no question about that. Question is, what does that entail? What does that provide? Does that allow them to make their own state? Uh, Ar uh, Arsakh argues that they uh, became their own state um, at the time of the referendum back in the early 90s, uh, yet that has not been recognized by any other country in the world, which limits the power of that statement. So uh, w the question is, you know, this is one of the heart of the issue of the Armenian side of the conflict, so how do we progress in this situation? One possibility is remedial succession, that it shows that the situation for these people is so bad that they have to be given their own state as the only way to protect themselves. And the, the key example of this is what happened in Kosovo. The Kosovars were facing uh, genocidal threats, eth constant ethnic cleansing, um, ethnic-based massacres, and then, you know, the threat of genocide and, and acts of, that would amount to genocide. And so the 
well, a portion of the international community agreed with the idea that they need to have their own state as the only way to be able to protect themselves. Uh, that decision to this day is still uh, uh, very controversial, and Kosovo has not been recognized as a full state by, uh, for example, the United Nations or any institution like that. So um, this idea of remedial succession, it exists in public international law, but it's a very, very, very high threshold to achieve. It's not something that states really like to do. Uh, Azerbaijan likes uh, constantly brings up the principle of uh, territorial integrity, and it does it for a good reason. And that is that states like this principle. You know, states exist. They already exist. We're not talking about future states. The states that exist in when they already exist, they want to protect what their concerns are, their resources. And one of them is territory. States don't like to lose territory. And so states promote this idea of territorial integrity. And so that is something that is always in conflict with the right to self-determination when you view right to self-determination as leading to succession, to be able to have your own country. And now that was a big, long you know, spiel. Let me focus on this specific case. To get to the idea of remedial succession, we need to have a very high amount of human rights violations. We're not talking about you know, uh, constant statements of discrimination or hatred. We're not talking about, you know, regular instances of abuse of property, for example, uh, or uh, mis uh, casual mistreatment. We need something on the level of at least uh, gross ethnic cleansing or genocide. And that is not something that is regularly that the international community sees in Arsakh. I know Armenians will want to disagree with that statement. I fully acknowledge that. But it's just not something where we're leading to the level of abuses that we saw in other in the situation of Kosovo, and especially now we have a you know a semi geopolitical solution, which is the Russian peacekeepers, and so that you know that's obviously not a guaranteed solution. It's not even a long term solution, but it's at least enough to prevent any mass atrocities from occurring. And as long as we're in a situation where there is not going to be mass atrocities we're not going to be able to get remedial succession. That's, not, that's going to just be off the table. Because uh, territorial integrity is such an important thing, states will be consistent in, in wanting to say, okay, yes, we, you know, we will promote the right to self-determination, but we also care about territorial integrity. And in most instances, those two do work hand in hand. Uh, indigenous tribes in many countries have a degree of autonomy that uh, is, helps them realize their right to self-determination while at the same time not being able to break away and form their own country, like remedial succession. Well, I think that um, I'm glad you mentioned, of course, Kosovo, which is like the uh, premier example of this situation in Europe. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, we know that Kosovo doesn't have the full recognition of the UN in in the sense of being a full state like the United States or France or Azerbaijan or, you know, the countries that are actually mm. full states. But in practical terms, they are independent and, and they are self-governing. So mm -hmm. in that sense, I feel like having the practical sense of being self-governing and being safe from, you know, constant aggression is a very important thing on the mm -hmm. way to perhaps someday these states actually getting the the UN recognition that they deserve. And the thing is that at this point, Aliyev does not want Artsakh to have that. He's not saying, mm -hmm. you know, I'm I'm perfectly comfortable with the with the Artsakhsis having their own government and being independent from Azerbaijan. What he's talking mm -hmm. about is full integration. And mm -hmm. and he and one of the statements that he keeps making is there's no such thing as Nagorno-Karabakh Oblast, mm -hmm. as as which is the of course the Soviet term. And um, mm -hmm. because what he's essentially saying is it's it's all Azerbaijan. There's a there's a Karabakh region of Azerbaijan, but there's no such mm -hmm. thing as this particular place that these Armenians live. They're just all you know citizens of Azerbaijan. Mm -hmm. You're absolutely right. Uh, before the recent war, uh, Aliyev would uh, did make statements that the uh, Armenians of Arsakh would have uh, the highest level of autonomy possible. You know. Uh, which is part of the idea of, of right to self-determination, having that uh, autonomy. Um, 
it was never clarified. Uh, Baku never made like a white paper saying what that autonomy would be. So it was always just, I don't want to necessarily say off the cuff statements, but it wasn't ever something that was seriously developed on the Baku side. And so Armenians never really, you know, tr went with it because there's nothing to go with. Uh, Post-war, uh, yeah, uh, Aliyev has, <laughs> has not come close to that. So the idea of autonomy, he has completely dismissed. Uh, he has basically noted at best we might have some cultural autonomy. Uh, so example, Armenians would be able to have uh, Armenian schools that would teach in the Armenian language, but that would be the extent of it, uh, which is uh, a significant reduction from the idea of autonomy that exists in many other places where the right to self-determination uh, says, okay, you don't necessarily get your own state, but you definitely are able to develop your own resources, have your own institutions like having your own self-governance. Um, you know, exactly what Artsakh was living with for the last few, you know, arguably uh, for the last almost 100 years, if you include not just the time uh, since the, the first war, but uh, as uh, the autonomous oblast, they had a sense of independence from Baku, a sense of autonomy from Baku um, uh, from basically the beginning. Well, one one thing, of course, I don't want to go without mentioning is I find it very disturbing that the idea of international law says that you have to allow yourself to be massacred and genocided without, you know, defending yourself in order to mm -hmm. prove that someone, you know, that um, a, the state is inherently hostile to if, mm -hmm. if it's an ethnic group or um, a minority group or whatever the case may be. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're absolutely right. Uh, it's a it's a difficult situation because one needs to be able to present evidence of of a mass atrocity and the clearest evidence of a of a possibility of a mass atrocity. And one the clearest evidence for that is an actual mass atrocity. Uh, and so that often means that the law lags behind um, what the situation would be, and that's not what anyone wants. It's kind of more just a, uh, a a result of how the structure is. So if we look at, for example, the Rohingya, which are currently undergoing genocide, the abuses that they felt, uh, faced uh, were ongoing for a long period of time. There is destruction to their homes, uh, disrespect by the state, uh, but it w wasn't until that the state of Myanmar engaged in full-scale genocide of going into their villages, destroying every uh, all the buildings, uh, massacring the people. It wasn't only until we got to that stage that the international uh, community really started to care about the issue. We don't want to have to wait that long for um, Artsakh. And one benefit of this case is to help bring more attention to what's going on there. Um, but how that spells out and how much uh, engagement we're going to get for other potential solutions, I can't predict that. I mean, that's really an issue of geopolitics. Uh, it's just, it's a challenge. It's something that Armenians have to keep fighting for to help prevent such a you know, potential massacre from occurring. Uh, or what is more likely, in my opinion, is uh, at the time, at the, if the, there's no long-term solution, the Russian peacekeepers are going to have to leave after you know, four or nine years, depends if it's extended or not, which will lead to uh, Armenians leaving the area, a, a ethnic cleansing of Armenians out of a sense of necessity, because if they stay, they face the potential to uh, suffer torture or be killed. And so it, that would be a, a awful, horrific... Um, results that we want to avoid, um, but we, the international community won't necessarily step in until there's more evidence for something stronger, something uh, that something such, such a mass atrocity would occur. Now, with regard to the uh, provisional decisions in the ICJ case, um, a lot of lay people have characterized this as a victory um, for Armenia but you cautioned against characterizing it that way. Um, why would you not characterize it as a victory? Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of the content of the provisional measures, it was great for Armenia. Um, the well-treatment of the POWs, as I already said, it's, it's, uh, I don't think is the most serious concern at this stage now. It certainly was a year ago, um, but it's obviously nice to have that. Uh, but the bigger thing is the uh, protection of the cultural sites, which are defenseless, you know, they're, they're, they, Azerbaijan was able to do anything it wanted with them. Um, and then there's the hate speech from, um, especially from Baku, from political institutions. Um, 
the, the protecting the cultural sites is one of the things that really inflames Armenians because there's such a history of destruction of cultural sites. And I don't just mean uh, uh, going to the genocide uh, or you know, anything before that. And you can just think of the, um, the Jolfa Cemetery in Nakhichevan, which was bulldozed by Azerbaijan in the mid-2000s. And so this is something that Armenians are very sensitive to because this is, you know, the ethnic heritage that once it's gone, it's gone and it can, you know, it's irreplaceable. And so by having this protection, it certainly that sense is a win for Armenia. You know, it, it helps satisfy what Armenians concerns are about. But the reason I don't like to characterize this as a victory is because as a lawyer, the court case is not done. You know, we haven't gotten to the merit stage. So I don't want to say one side won and one side didn't until the end. Maybe I'm being too cautious, but that is my legal side coming out. And the other side is that, you know, going, uh, stepping out a little bit beyond law is the idea of, of trying to resolve this conflict. And ultimately what we want is, uh, the, the, we want a solution to this conflict. We want this conflict to end. And viewing everything as a winner, uh, a win or lose situation is not necessarily beneficial to the conflict. So, for example, both sides have uh, a provisional measure against uh, hate speech um, against the other. That's something that can help benefit the conflict overall by, you know, trying to get rid of some of the, the worst rhetoric that is around to help try to get some resolution, to get some, get the populations actually to communicate with each other, to engage with each other. There has been small steps of that online, uh, mostly by the young generation that has not lived um, with or has not uh, been instilled this hatred for the other as much as maybe in the more like uh, the, the older generations have. Um, but these are all uh, just different aspects of, you know, the conflict that are something that I personally am very concerned by and I would love to see a resolution to. So while in the end, the court case probably will have a winner or a loser, and I will say that, you know, court cases generally one side does not get what it wants and that's a, a loser. Um, for the provisional measures at this stage, I'll say that they are, it's been very beneficial for Armenia, um, but I would also say that it's good for the conflict overall. And in the sense that Azerbaijanis also want to end the conflict, then it's also good for them. So that's why I don't like to say it was a victory for Armenia. The status and self-determination issues for Artsakh is not going to um, lie and be resolved with, within international courts, but it's going to take a different avenue of resolution, which obviously we don't fully see yet what that resolution mm -hmm. would be to get to that self-determination stage. Um, do you have any um, idea in what sense in, or what possible avenue um, there could be for self-determination for Artsakh? What would be the, um, in, in the sense of who, what would be the ultimate um, international body or organization, or is it a question of, um, you know, the powerful countries of the UN Security Council um, getting together within, say, the framework of the OSC Minsk Group? What do you mm -hmm. think is the um, primary body for um, having this process of, of self-determination or mm -hmm. uh, possible protection for Artsakh? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I wish I had a, a clear, concise answer for this question. Um, the right to self-determination is well established in international law. It's in the UN Charter. It is Article 1 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political, Political Rights and Article 1 of the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights. It's, an, it's a well-recognized human right. However, because the realization of this right often has such big political uh, dimensions to it, it's not state's favorite human right. Um, it's something that uh, most, like uh, CERD is in the mentality of a traditional human rights system where you have the state above the individual, the state is, has a, a duty that they owe to the individual. The right to self-determination kind of breaks that because we don't necessarily have a state over them, or maybe it's the wrong state that is over them. Because the idea of self-governance can mean, you know, as Armenians argue in the situation of Artsakh, that Artsakhsi should not be under the control of Baku. And so because this human right is fundamentally a bit different than other human rights like freedom of expression or right to a fair trial, uh, it, it's hard for, its realization is different. 
And because its realization involves geopolitics, unfortunately, I don't think there will be any meaningful resolution without including um, the great, you know, large, great powers and institutions like the OSCE Minsk Group. I think that will be the only route that would lead to um, some sort of uh, negotiated development or recognition of this right in this situation of Artsakh. Well, thank you so much, Gabriel Armas Garzona, for um, joining us today and your incredible legal analysis and your insights. Not only, um, obviously, we had a wide-ranging discussion not only about the ICJ trial, but the geopolitical issues um, that are surrounding that trial and the issues that we have outstanding uh, regarding the protection of the people of Artsakh and their possible uh, future status, because... I, I think it's fair to say that the people of Artsakh don't see themselves as having a future within the state of Azerbaijan and being mm -hmm. under the control of the state of Azerbaijan. So thank you so much for joining me today. And of course, I want to um, thank our audience as well for um, listening to um, our discussions. And I, I understand it's not the easiest thing in the world to listen to, uh, but it is very important. Mm -hmm. Uh, thank you again for the invitation to be here. I'm very happy to be able to elaborate on these issues. Um, one, I like to talk about law and I like to help clarify it so people understand um, how international law works. But uh, yeah, um, these are the big, these are seriously life and death issues for the people of Arsakh and for Armenians and Azerbaijanis in the area. And how this conflict is ultimately resolved won't be just decided in this one court case. This is just one small chapter of the conflict overall, but I'm happy to help, you know, clarify whatever I'm able to, to, you know, help us uh, reach whatever positive end goal we can. Thank you again uh, for joining us today. Gabriel Armas Gardona Esquire, um, joining us today from Yerevan, Armenia.